Well, today we do begin a new sermon series that will take us to Easter. Perhaps it's fitting to begin today on Super Bowl Sunday as we head to, all right, yeah, great, as we, uh, got a fan, as we head to uh, the Super Bowl of our faith, woohoo, and uh, which is uh, Resurrection Day, and we're looking forward, looking forward to that. But uh, I'm really excited about this series as it will help us to dwell on the meaning of Jesus on the cross and why that matters. And so today we're going to look at Luke 23 in just a few minutes. So if you have a Bible with you, turn it to Luke 23, and that'll be our passage of the day. And if you're new here, um, because we have a lot of new people every single week, uh, we always, we'd love to give you fill in the blanks. Just these outlines help you to maybe engage with, with the message and the scriptures. And so I hope that you'll follow along and it'll give you something to think about and pray about throughout the week. So this message series is going to have to, a lot to do with death. And our culture, for the most part, doesn't like to talk about death. Right now, it's very popular to talk about longevity and in our age of high tech and antibiotics, we, we tend to avoid thinking about death. But death is, is an important thing to think about. You may remember this famous letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1789. He was talking about our constitution as a nation, as this was a new experiment of sorts. And Ben Franklin said this, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I love uh, what Will Rogers said, I think in the 1950s. He said, the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets, which I think is fitting. Well, we're we're not talking about taxes, but we are going to talk about death, and specifically the death of Jesus. And my hope and prayer in the series is that you will take time out of your chaotic life to dwell on the meaning of Christ's cross And I hope and pray that there's someone here, maybe even today, over the next few weeks, that will hear of what Christ has done, and they will be saved. They will give their life to Jesus and cross from death to life. And I hope that you're praying with that, uh, for that as well. So let's look today at the first of these seven last words of Christ from the cross. And this first one is found in Luke 23, as we see Jesus being crucified. And let's look at verses 32 through 38. And as soon as you get there, would you stand up and let me read for you Luke 23, 32 through 38. Now, two others who were criminals were also being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. And the people stood by watching. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also ridiculed him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him, this is 
the King of the Jews. Father, as we begin this journey towards Resurrection Day, I pray that you would help us to think deeply about what it means for Christ to die for us and what these sayings mean as we seek to live for you. God, would you move in this place as I know you already have. Teach us, convict us, inspire us, and help us to be your disciples. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. So when we talk about the Easter story, my hunch is that most of you know this, have heard this, but perhaps not. At this point in the story, Jesus has stood before Pilate, who then ushered him to Herod, who then kicked him back over to Pilate. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and yet the crowds demanded that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. So Pilate did what he had the authority to do. He sent Jesus to be crucified. We're told by the gospel writer here, Luke, that he's crucified not by himself, but at least on that day, there were two others with him, one on his right and one on his left. They went to a place called the Skull, Golgotha, probably because it looks like a skull. And in the most simplest yet striking of ways, Luke simply says, and there they crucified him. Do you know how unique the crucifixion of Jesus is? There is no faith in the world that says its leader came and died for his or her people. Only Christianity says that. This is a unique one-time event that changed the world forever. And we have to wrestle with questions as it relates to the death of Jesus. And let me give you a good question and an even better question. We don't only need to ask, why did Jesus have to die But we should even ask, why did Jesus have to be crucified? Have you ever thought about that? Throughout his time and since, there's been other acts of torture and violence to to punish criminals by the state, beheadings and firing squads, electric chairs. But why the crucifixion? I don't want to be crass because I know we have little ears in the room. And yet, we also need to be serious about the realities of what it was like to be crucified. And why was Jesus crucified? You've seen the movies, the stories, you read the Bible. What happened? Well, when a criminal was crucified, it often would start with scourging. That's where they'd take the whips with the bone and the metal at the end of the whip, and it would just rip the flesh off the back of the criminal. Often, this put the criminal in such a weakened state that they could barely move, and some didn't even survive the scourging. But if you did survive, then they would ridicule you. And, and we saw that they did that with Jesus. They, they mocked him and said, you're a king, and gave him a cape and a crown of thorns, and that's what you did. You made fun of criminals who were being punished for their bad behavior. And they paraded them through the streets, forcing them to carry the cross beam. See, the cross was half and half. There was already a fixed pillar in the ground, and they would put the crossbeam on the criminal and then hoist him onto the pillar that was in the ground. Jesus couldn't carry his own cross. Tells you something about his weakened state. And not only were your hands, well, technically it was your wrist that was usually nailed to the crossbeam, but you were thrown on your back and then hoisted onto this, onto this pillar 
And beyond the pain that had to be excruciating through your wrist, you had muscle cramps and the loss of bodily functions and controls. You had insects and dirt, people mocking you and throwing things at you. It was a, it was a public spectacle. People went there for sport, for entertainment, to watch these criminals. And most of the time, criminals would last sometimes hours, sometimes days, dying not of blood loss, but often of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. The way you were hung on the cross put all the pressure on your diaphragm. You had to hoist yourself <gasps> to take a breath, and often you were in a weakened state. And in the cruelest of ironies, those who were being crucified were also forced to be their own executioners. It was your body turning on itself to kill you. Now, we see that, and we hear that, and it's stunning, and, and it, it's horrifying, but why, why the crucifixion? Why the crucifixion? Susan Sontag is a, an American writer who eventually died after battling cancer for years. And this is what she wrote about her cancer battle. She said, it's not suffering as such that is the most deeply feared, but suffering that degrades. That was the point of the crucifixion, to degrade, to stamp out to mock, to ridicule, to shame. If you had money, if you had means, you weren't crucified. Very few rich people were ever crucified. They had a way of working themselves out of that system. No, no, no. It was the nameless, faceless, moneyless, nothing. Criminals, common criminals that Rome would put up on crosses like sport, like billboards to say, this is what happens when you cross us. Don't do it again. And it was with the lowliest and the nameless and the faceless that Jesus identifies on the cross. And in six hours' time, he is crucified and then he is dead. This was a shameful thing. I think that's why Paul in Romans 1 would say, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we often preach that as if to say, hey, don't, don't be scared to tell people about Jesus. Be, be full of faith and courage and don't be ashamed of, of the most important thing in your life. But the reason Paul is saying I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because tons of people were ashamed of the crucifixion. What, what religion is it that your leader comes and dies the most shameful of deaths? And that, that is exactly at the heart of our faith and what Christ did. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind. And the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. And that's still true today. The religious people thought, this is scandalous. How can you say this is of God and you're dying like a common criminal on a cross? Scandalous. To, to Greeks, it was like, this is, this is foolish. This is stupid. You're going to base your life on some guy dying on a cross for you? And yet that is what we preach, Christ crucified. And so the series lets us dwell on 
what Jesus said as he was crucified and how that tells us something about our heart and tells us much more about his heart. So in the few moments I have with you today, I'd like to just dwell on that for a few moments. What did it mean for Jesus to say from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? What does that mean? I mean, didn't they know? It it sure seems like Pilate knew what he was doing. He knew Jesus was innocent and still handed him over to be crucified. Didn't he know? Didn't, Didn't religious leaders know they conspired against Jesus? They, they brought up false charges against you. Surely they knew, and the Roman soldiers, they did this for a job. Jesus was just one in, in a hundred that they were asked to crucify that year. Just another day on the job. Didn't they know? Yet Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Let's think about that a minute. What, what, what didn't they know? Several things. Let me give you a few. First of all, they didn't know that they were killing the Son of God. Whether they didn't know or chose not to believe, they were blinded to the cosmic events that are happening right in front of them on the cross. And they didn't know they were killing the Son of God. That language is driven by what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says this, No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it, for if they had, here's here's the line, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. If they had understood the cosmic realities of what's happening in this moment, they would not have killed the Son of God. And yet this was predicted, was it not? I mean, the Old Testament prophesies so much of what Jesus did on the cross. Isaiah 53, or if you're from England, Isaiah 53. What a beautiful passage to remind us of what Jesus is doing. And like, here's an example right here. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says this. And he, I'll add the he, and he was counted with wrongdoers, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. Is that not what's happening here? Jesus Christ is counted with who? A criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. And what is he doing in his dying breath? Interceding for them. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. It's prophesied. Jesus had to remind his disciples constantly that this is what he came to do. Jesus one time asked his disciples, who... All right, go out in the crowd. Who, who, do people, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, but who do you say that I am? And they answered correctly, you are the Christ. And this is what he followed up with in Luke 9. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. Is that what was happening right here on the cross? And be killed and be raised on the third day. So yes, they knew they were putting what they believed a criminal on a cross to suffer the fate of of Roman judicial execution, but they didn't know. They didn't have a clue that this was actually part of the plan of God. They didn't know. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What what else did they know? Number two, they, they didn't know the severity of sin. 
What is sin? We, we use that word a lot in church. And if you're in church, you put a little accent on it, don't you? Sin. That's what we say in church. What does it mean to sin? Well, the word literally means to miss the mark. If I, if I put a, a dartboard up here and said, let's throw some darts. You might hit the bullseye every now and then, but you're not going to hear it every time. You're going to miss the mark every now and then. Sin is like that. It's missing the mark. It's, it's not doing the things that God wants us to do. And yet there is such a severity to sin that we need to think about and we need to dwell on. And I would say this, I think that we often don't realize the severity of sin until after we are saved. When the light of Christ shines on us, it's like everything is now put in the light and we see just how deep our sin is. It's like the analogy of the, of the guy who is riding his horse in the night and rides over a frozen pond to get to where he's going, not realizing what he's doing. And someone tells him, I can't believe you rode over that frozen pond. And once he realizes what he's, what he's been through and, 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 and how dangerous it was, he's so grateful that nothing else happened. And that's what it's salvation is like. You come to Christ and you look back and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I can't believe the depth of my sin. But what is sin? And what's the Bible say about sin? It says a lot. Here's a few thoughts to think about. The Bible presents sin as culpable guilt. That's the first thing I'd say, culpable guilt. The word culpable meaning that there is a responsibility that comes with us not doing what it is that God called us to do. We see that in the very beginning, Adam and Eve. God says, don't eat from this tree. All the rest is yours. Trust me. And they eat from the tree. And you know what they did after they sinned? Genesis 3.8 puts it like this. Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They had never done that. Why did they hide themselves? They had never hid themselves before. Because shame. Because they had sinned against the Lord. The, the hymn Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. And John Newton was an English slave ship captain. And once he gave his life to Christ and was saved, he looked back at just how much Jesus had done to save him and the horrors that he had been involved with. I mean, trafficking people, trafficking slaves, and he felt, he felt awful. And I, I wonder what it was like for John Newton to write these lyrics. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. We don't use that word a lot, but a wretch like me. Our, our culpable guilt makes us wretches before a holy God. That's what sin does. It's this culpable guilt. You know what else sin is? We need to see sin as this, it's this, it's this prevailing power that's over everything. And, and I don't think it's wrong to say in this way that we are victims of sin. Yes, the guilt is that we're perpetrators of sin, but to some degree we're also victims of a broken world and this evil, demonic, alien force that prevails over us that the Bible calls sin. It's this prevailing power. Paul wrote about this in Romans 7. He was talking about why is it that, and I bet you can identify with this, why is it that like I know the right thing to do, but it's like my body wants to do something else. 
And I know it's not right, but I do it. You ever been there? That's what Paul says. He says, look at this, Romans 7. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner, a prisoner of the law of sin. The law which is in my body's parts. And notice the word, wretched man that I am. And notice this question. Who will set me free from this body of death? He saw his life, in a sense, a prisoner to sin and his power and his penalty. Who will set me free? Well, fortunately for us, it's not just a rhetorical question. He answers the question. You know what the answer is? Look at what he says in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news, amen? I mean, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How did God do it? Right here. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Where did that happen? On the cross. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that's my prayer. Oh, that's my prayer over the next few weeks. That there are people here, people who believe that you have the power to forgive yourself and to become the person you want to be. Let me tell you something. You do not have that power. You need the power of Jesus to set you free from the law of death and to make you alive by the spirit of God. Sin is this this power and it's this thirdly, this cosmic battle this battle, that we're engaged in this battle with Satan and, and the powers of evil. When, when Adam and Eve sinned in the, in the garden, do you remember what happened? They sin, and of course, they're going to be banished from the garden. But God pronounces judgment to, to the woman, to the man, and also to the serpent. Remember, Satan came as a serpent. And some people say Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel or the first proclamation of the gospel in all the Bible. And it says this, God says to the woman and to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, speaking to the snake, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Yes, the devil will strike the heel of Christ, but Christ will stomp out the head of the devil. You, you remember the, the Passion of the Christ? Anybody see the movie, The Passion of the Christ? You see it one time, you're like, that's good, I'm good. One time was enough. But do you remember that scene when Jesus is praying in the garden and that snake comes and he stomps him out? Remember that? That was awesome. Now that's not in the Bible anywhere, but that was awesome. But it does depict the battle that's happening in the garden before Christ goes to the cross. Luke 22 says it like this. Just feel the battle here. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and being in agony. He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood 
falling down upon the ground. This is a battle. And today we are engaged in a battle for Christ. Now, it's not our power. We fight in the power of Jesus. We don't fight with the, with the weapons of the world. I, uh, I came across this quote from the 1789 Book of Common Prayer. Now, I know you read that regularly, but, you know, uh, I love this. This, this, is, this is something, a prayer that they would pray over babies when they're baptized. Now, we're not into the old baby baptizing thing, but I love this prayer, all right? And this is the prayer they say when a child is baptized. 1789, all right, listen to this. And this is not politically correct, but you also love, but it says this. We receive this child into the congregation of Christ's flock and do sign him with a sign of the cross in token that hereafter he shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil, and to continue as Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto his life's end. Amen. I mean, that is good. That is good. I'm going to start saying that when y'all are baptized, to fight manfully under his banner. I'm going to start saying that. I love that. But it, it gives this idea that we're engaged in this battle that Christ has won through his death, his burial, and of course, his resurrection. But, but, but they, they didn't know the severity of sin. Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. You know what else they didn't know? They didn't know the depth, the depth of God's love. Think about his dying breath and what's happening. People are making fun of him, sneering, ridiculing the religious leaders, the soldiers, the crowds are watching this whole thing. And, and their logic is, is pretty understandable, right? I mean, wouldn't you say the same thing? If you say you're God, this is the moment. Prove it by removing yourself from this hour of need. And that makes sense to us. That, that's why we like movies that do that kind of thing. That's why we like Avenger movies, right? Like the, the, the hero is, is at his lowest point. It's at that point that he musters up some kind of power to overcome and win the day and defeat his enemy. That's what they want on the cross. Jesus, be an Avenger right now. But what they don't know, what they don't know is that by not coming off the cross, they are witnessing the greatest act of love in human history. And they have no category for a God who uses his power not to save himself, but uses his power to save others, which reveals just the incredible, unfathomable height, width, and depth of God's love. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness. R.C. Sproul died a few years ago. He was a well-known author, pastor, theologian. He told the story about a good buddy of his who was a psychiatrist down in South Florida, and he offered R.C. a job to come be on his staff. And it paid a bunch of money, and R.C. asked his friend, said, what? 
why would you want me to come be on your staff? I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a pastor, he said, because what I found in the lives of people is that they don't need a psychiatrist. They need a, peop- they need a pastor because most people walk around with unresolved guilt. And they need someone to simply put their hand on their shoulder and say, you are forgiven. Did you know that's what Jesus did on the cross? He did everything needed so that he could say, you are forgiven. And if he walked in this room right now, he would put his hand on your shoulder and say, you remember that thing you did last night? You are forgiven. Remember the thing you said last week? You are forgiven. You are forgiven. That's at the heart of God. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. So what should we do with that? What should our response be? It's pretty simple. For some of you, you need to ask for and receive his forgiveness. You call that being saved, you call that being born again, whatever you want to call it, but I'm talking moving from death to life and asking for your sins to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the next step that a lot of you need to make today, to ask and to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. But if you've already done that, the second thing I would say is this. Maybe it's just for believers in the room. But you need to forgive others in his name. If he has done so much to forgive you, I wonder how many of you walk around with unresolved guilt and shame needing to forgive others. So I don't know what your response is today, but that's my prayer for you, that you would receive his forgiveness and you would give his forgiveness. And I hope and pray that we would live in light of his forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love you and thank you for this moment. And thank you for the love that is demonstrated through Jesus on the cross for us. Lord God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who needs to receive and the gift of forgiveness through Jesus, would that happen today? And God, would you come into their life and save them and change them and put your spirit to them? And Lord, would they repent of their sin and stop going their way and turn your way, God? Lord, if there's anyone here today who needs to just give forgiveness, they've just been harboring resentment and bitterness towards somebody, hatred, anger, God, would you set them free and realize that we are like the soldiers, we are like the religious leaders, we are like the crowd. And you say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.